In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that everywhere Jesus went during his adult ministry, he taught crowds of people and that his chosen way of teaching them was to tell them short stories, or as the New Testament authors call them, parables. As we read in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. Of course, this is a bit of an exaggeration on Matthew's part. Elsewhere, in his own gospel, he records Jesus teaching the crowds who follow him in ways that don't include telling stories. Perhaps Matthew is referring to a specific period of Jesus' ministry. Or perhaps he's just pointing out that Jesus told so many of these short stories that it seemed like the only way he ever spoke to the crowds. Either way, if you read a gospel like Matthew or Mark or Luke, it becomes quickly clear that Jesus really did love to teach people by telling them stories. The question is why? Why all these stories? Why not just be more clear and plain about what you're trying to say? The famous Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard suggested that the benefit of telling these parables is that they do more than just convey information. They unsettle us. They, they force people to see things in a new way. Parables are, as he liked to put it, a kind of indirect communication. And their power lies precisely in the fact that they get to us indirectly. It's like Emily Dickinson said in her poem, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success and circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. But parables don't just do that. They don't just tell the truth indirectly and in a way that will surprise us. They're not meant to only unsettle us or force us to see things in a different way. They certainly do that. Jesus's stories teach fundamental truths about who God is and what God's like and what it means to live in relationship with him in his kingdom. But they do more than that. These stories Jesus told aren't just meant to give us information. They're meant to change the way we live. One Bible scholar who has devoted a lot of his career to the study of parables put it like this. A parable's ultimate aim is to awaken insight, stimulate the conscience, and move to action. They seek to goad people into the action the gospel deserves and the kingdom demands. Over the next seven sessions, we'll be studying these stories of Jesus. And we're not going to study all of them. There are more than 40 recorded in the New Testament. And it would take far more than seven sessions to tackle them all. But we will be discussing some of his most well-known parables. And as we study them, I'd ask you to keep in mind these two principles I've highlighted about how these stories work. As you're reading and discussing these parables, ask yourself, why does Jesus choose to use a parable to convey his message? How is this supposed to change the way I see God? or myself, or the world around me. And along with that, ask yourself, how should I respond to this story? How is it moving me to act? But enough talk about what parables are and how they function. Let's turn our attention to the actual stories Jesus told, 
and begin with a discussion of the very first parable that he tells in the Gospel of Mark. It's often called the parable of the sower. And that makes some sense. I mean, just think about how Jesus begins. First, he calls for attention, listen. And then he begins his story. A sower went out to sow. So you can see why this story is often called the parable of the sower. But as you read it, you'll notice that the sower isn't really the focus. Most of the discussion is about what happens with the seed and what its fate is in different kinds of soil. So I'm going to use a different title for this story. I'm going to call it the parable of the seed and the soil. And that's how I'm going to structure my discussion of it, by talking about the seed and then the soil. So first, the seed. In his private explanation of the meaning of this story to the disciples, Jesus identifies what the seed is meant to symbolize. The sower, he says, sows the word. Now, what exactly is this word that is being sown? It's not quite as obvious as you might think. The early church father, Clement of Alexandria, understood this to be a reference to, to any and all ways that God has revealed truth to people throughout the world, including, he thinks, the truths discovered by Greek philosophers. In each age, he says, the word has come down upon all like rain. Well, that's one possible way to read it, but it's probably not the best interpretation. If you read the version of this story in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll notice that the seed is called not just the word, but the word of the kingdom. Now, the plainest understanding of what Jesus means by the word then isn't any and all forms of natural revelation, but the specific proclamation that he himself is going around speaking. The good news, as Mark 1 verse 14 puts it, that the kingdom of God has come near. So this seed then is the proclamation of the kingdom, the, the gospel announcement of what God is doing in Christ. And for that reason, Christians have rightly tended to interpret the seed in this parable to refer not just to Jesus' own preaching, but to the words of Scripture, the inspired and recorded word of the prophets and apostles who bore witness to him. And understanding the seed that way makes this parable all of a sudden much more pertinent and pressing for us. Because if Jesus is telling a story that only refers to his own personal preaching and the different ways people were responding to him, well, then it would be easy for us to, to read it as an interesting story about a time that's now past and people now deceased. But if this story is meant to tell us something about the word that is continually being spoken to us through the words of Scripture, well, then this stops being a story about another time in another place. And all of a sudden, it becomes a story about us. And that's exactly what it is. It's a story about the word of God, the word that's constantly being read and proclaimed. And it's about the different ways that people respond to that word. Which brings us to the soil. And Jesus talks about four different types of soil, or at least four different types of ground upon which the seed falls. There's the path, 
the rocky ground, thorny soil, and then what he calls good soil. And he explains a little bit more about each of these. Take the first one, for instance. The, the soil represented by the path, he says, refers to those who, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. You might think that this, this is a reference to people who are skeptics and who simply refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus. Or you might think that this refers to people who are outside of the church. But notice that Jesus says that they, they do hear the word. It's sown in them. They hear it, but it takes no root in their hearts. They hear, but Satan immediately snatches it away. The Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, applying this to the, the circumstances of his own day, he said that this refers to people who come to church and hear the word read and preached out, but they don't really pay any attention. They go, he says, to a place of worship for form's sake or because it's fashionable or to appear respectable before other people. But they take no interest whatever in the preaching. It produces no more effect on them than water on a stone. And in the end, they go away knowing no more than when they came in. Well, then Jesus mentions another kind of soil, the rocky ground. This, he says, refers to people who, when they hear the word, respond to it immediately with joy, but they, they have no root. And when things become difficult, they fall away. I'm sure you've had some experience with this kind of person. At first, or, or at some point, they, they seem so zealous and excited about the faith. But over time, that excitement and zeal wanes. And at some point, it turns into a casual attitude and finally into disinterest altogether. The German theologian Helmut Thielicke, he said that this response happens when people aren't interested in Christ himself, but in something they think they're getting from him. Maybe it's an emotionally fulfilling experience. Maybe it's the, the pride of belonging to a certain church or the pleasure and enjoyment of listening to a certain preacher. Maybe what they're really interested in is how Christianity can provide a good moral code or a solid foundation for politics or a buttress to, to defend them against the decline of Western culture. All this is fine and good, Telica says, but it is not Christ himself. None of this compels us to die. None of it demands repentance. But of course, the Christian life isn't meant to be easy. It's costly. Jesus said that it involves dying daily, that we will face difficulty and persecution. So when these things come, the emotional or the moral or the political benefits, they're not enough to keep people around and they fall away. A similar phenomenon happens with the third soil Jesus talks about. Now here too, we are confronted not with people who respond negatively to the word of the gospel or who reject it outright. They might even heartily prove of it, but it is unproductive in their lives because something else distracts them. The cares of the world, Jesus says, and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, 
and it proves unfruitful. You know, it's one of the, the great oddities of the kingdom of God, one that's repeated again and again by Jesus and, and by other writers of scripture, that wealth and money, material comfort, though these things aren't in and of themselves bad, and though they can be a blessing from God, they often pose a very great spiritual danger. That was what Moses warned the people of Israel about before they entered the promised land. He warned them about how their prosperity and future ease of life would cause them to turn away from the Lord. It's a message that Jesus repeats frequently in the gospels and apostles like Paul and James talk about in their own letters. The early church father, John Chrysostom, said that this is something that shouldn't surprise us. Do not marvel at Jesus's calling our luxuries thorns. Luxury pricks sharper than any thorn. Luxury wastes away the soul even worse than anxiety. The third kind of soil represents people who willingly hear the word, but they're just too distracted by the comforts and the cares of this life for it to make any lasting impact on them. Of course, these three aren't the only kinds of soil. Jesus also mentions good soil that responds well to the word and, and in whose lives it bears great fruit. Interestingly, though, he doesn't really say anything about how they are so productive. With the other kinds of soil, he at least gives us some detail about what makes them the way they are. But he doesn't do that with the good soil. And that's important because we might be tempted to read this story and think of it as a kind of spiritual how-to, as a set of instructions on what to do and not to do so that you can become a fruitful and productive Christian. But Jesus gives no instruction about how to become good soil. He doesn't tell us what to do. Because if you think about it, good soil doesn't really do anything. Good soil isn't active. It's patient and receptive and allows itself to be acted upon. As one preacher aptly put it, those on the good ground, it's not that they do anything you see. Rather, it's that they don't do things that get in the word's way. It's the word and the word alone that does all the rest. As with all of Jesus's parables, this is no mere story. It's a way of telling us truth, truth that we may not want to hear. It's a way of forcing us to see God in ourselves and the world around us in a different way. And there's a purpose behind it. Jesus didn't just tell stories to, to inform or to entertain. He told them so that we would respond. The question all of us must ask ourselves is what kind of soil are we? Are we those who just hear the word and don't pay it any attention? Or are only interested in it as long as it says things we want to hear? Or are we those who listen to the word of Jesus and let the word do its work? <laughs>